everybody. Welcome back to the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX has also recently announced their stocks beta rolling out to U.S. customers to enable crypto, stocks, and NFT trading in one interface. This includes hundreds of U.S. exchange-listed securities, including common stocks and ETFs, and an integrated experience within the existing FTX U.S. cryptocurrency trading application. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's Blockware one or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today we have a very special guest for you guys, Max Gagliardi, co-founder of Ancova and host of the Talk Energy Podcast. We've also got Joe Burnett from Blockware, our mining analyst, and he wears many other hats, but he's our mining analyst in the newsletter, at least uh, on here to co-host today. Max, thanks so much for taking the time, and, and Joe, you as well. Well, Joe, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I've been looking, uh, been looking forward to this one, and I think uh, it's very timely with all these kind of current uh, macro you know, uh, events that, are, that have gone on over the last, call it, you know, three, four months, so... Let's first start with to just back up and I want to talk about your background in the oil and gas industry and kind of how you got into Bitcoin from from that angle. Sure. Yeah. And first, just thanks again. Uh, Blockware has been great and uh, I'm just excited to be on and I'll just start kind of with the beginning of my career. I started out uh, coming out of Oklahoma State from Oklahoma, worked as an intern at a midstream company. So midstream is like pipelines uh, that take the product from uh, the wells kind of the middlemen from the wells to the market and they either process or transport it. So I got some experience doing that and then went from that internship and started at Chesapeake Energy out of school. At the time, Chesapeake was the largest driller of natural gas and the second largest, I believe, producer uh, in the US. I think Exxon with their acquisition of XTO was the largest, but we were just blowing and going and it's really good opportunity for me as a young person uh, to get a bunch of experience. And the cool thing about Chesapeake was, if you don't know any of the background, the founder, Aubrey McClendon, was this visionary that uh, believed in natural gas and was somebody that, uh, you know, really pioneered this space and uh, went out and got a bunch of acreage. And we can talk about more of the details of how the oil and gas industry works later. But basically, it was this kind of visionary guy and really created this huge company in Oklahoma City. And the cool thing about it was he gave young people a lot of opportunities. So I got just get all this experience. And my job's always been uh, for my whole career kind of at this intersection between energy and money. And like uh, the group that we were in was called the commercial group, uh, which is basically the group that's the liaison between the drilling company, the people that are trying to explore and find oil and gas. And then the, uh, you know, the midstream companies, which are the pipelines or then the purchasers ultimately of the product. And so we would do things like negotiate the infrastructure deals to move the product to market, um, co you know, coordinate with the actual uh, buyers of the product. So for oil, it's typically on truck, although you can pipe it. And then for gas, you have to pipe it and put it through like processing facilities if it's rich gas. And so there's just this huge amount of infrastructure stack between the wells 
and then uh, how it gets to your home or how it gets turned into electricity and, and uh, when you flip on a light or turn on a podcast camera. And so it's just always a really cool space for me. I just, I love that it had all these different elements. It was a little bit of uh, technical stuff in terms of you have to understand the engineering of these pipeline systems and things like that. There's also uh, just the commercial side of it, negotiating deals and the human element to it. And so it just was for me, like being a business background, um, I just didn't want to, you know, there's only so many things you can do in oil and gas if you're a business guy, because a lot of it's engineering, uh, geoscience, there's, uh, you know, all these technical professions, right? But if you're in business, you can basically be in the land side, which is like on the front end, like leasing the acreage, kind of think of it in like Bitcoin mining terms of like going out and procuring the site, like next to a substation or something. So the land guys go out and they uh, procure the acreage, like they lease the acreage to go drill. And then, or you can be like a finance guy or an account on the accounting side or administrative side and really the commercial side, this kind of this person that does liaison actually monetizes the energy is a very niche uh, segment of the oil and gas industry in an industry that's already pretty niche. And so worked there for a number of years and then left there. And in 2014 started in COVID energy, which started out just as like a advisory and consulting firm. And to be fair, like we didn't know if it was going to be a company, we didn't have like some big grand vision. It was me and I started doing some consulting. And then uh, my old vice president from Chesapeake left Chesapeake and uh, his name is Mark Edge. He's 30 years my senior. And we were both doing some consulting at the time and just decided, hey, there's a lot of work to do. Let's partner up and do it. And then we looked up and had, you know, six clients, then a dozen clients. And then we were hiring people and we primarily were working for kind of small and midsize oil and gas companies that didn't have like our expertise on staff. And so they were maybe getting like a subpar uh, amount for their energy and we could come in and we could save them money and negotiate these contracts and coordinate this infrastructure. And then in 16, we started in COVID energy marketing, which is we're actually buying and selling natural gas and we act as an agent on oil. And then in uh, 2018, we raised a $200 million commitment from a private equity group to go actually build midstream uh, assets and, joke around. I don't know if that was like good or bad timing, but um, it was kind of when the market started getting really challenged and we had one project that we built and then we sold out of that at the end of 19, which was like a really advantageous time. Uh, although right now with gas prices where they are, had we hold, held on to it, I'm sure we'd be seeing activity, but we exited that investment and then 2020 hit and uh, became challenging and our private equity sponsor because of COVID and oil prices going negative, they came back to us and they were like, you should, guys should focus on uh, alternative infrastructure investments. And they were really like hyper-focused on like uh, ESG and green stuff. And we didn't have a huge background in that, but we got up the learning curve pretty quickly. And actually it was in 2020, late 2020 is when we stumbled across Bitcoin mining. Uh, that's what we wanted to do. They were like, uh, we don't really understand it. It's really interesting. Um, and so long story short, they, we ended up, severing that partnership with those guys last year. And then we started in COVID digital on our own and started doing some Bitcoin mining, some consulting for it, but then also some of our own mining and we can get into that later. So hopefully that was concise enough to give you the background. Yeah, for sure. And Max, like what's the kind of uh, broad scope of opinions from the energy community? Uh, I guess from the kind of traditional energy community looking in this, you know, kind of little niche thing called Bitcoin when you're talking to these people, just what what's kind of the general consensus view of Bitcoin mining? I think people don't understand Bitcoin. And I think that that's the toughest thing is that everybody wants to look at it as just like a price per MCF or MMBTU. So gas, like a volume of gas is measured in MCF, which like for oil, it's in barrels. 
and then the heat content is MMBTU. So you could have like just dry gas would be uh would be just like a one, like typically it's like a thousand BTU. And then if it gets rich with all these other products, it's higher. And that's how we sell the products. So everybody's always like, what's the price uh, per MMBTU that we could get by converting this to Bitcoin. And when the hash rate dropped last summer and whenever prices were higher, it was just a ridiculous uh, per MMBTU. I think it was like upper thirties, like $35 plus per MMBTU, which to put that into perspective right now, gas is it, uh, recent all-time highs it's been higher in the past but it hasn't been this high since the 2000s and we're at like eight bucks 850 so that gives you some perspective and when you talk to guys in oil and gas and you're like i'm getting i can get 35 dollars in, in mmbtu and they're like you know their eye you know their eyes open wide because at the time gas was like three bucks you know so it was a 10x basically on the value of the energy that you could get and so that's what caught a lot of people's attention but i think the biggest hurdle is that people just don't understand bitcoin don't know what Bitcoin mining is. And so, and so that's been like the biggest hurdle is like the education. And then now obviously with commodity prices, oil and gas getting so high so quickly, I think guys are a little distracted and they're like, well, that's really cool. Uh, but unless the gas is stranded or doesn't have a market, then they're just hyper-focused on, uh, on selling their oil and selling their gas. So I think adoption is happening. Certain circles, like in the smaller and more entrepreneurial companies, uh, those guys are really keying in on it and getting smart. But the big guys, think right now they're viewing it more as kind of like a flare mitigation or some type of if you have stranded gas like a way to monetize that but uh it's an education process it's gonna take some time so with that kind of like educational barrier in mind is this why you launched the talk energy podcast and i guess just kind of like walk us through what was the decision behind launching that i mean just like high level you know just tell us about your podcast yeah so the podcast was a step out for me and I had prior to 2020 didn't really have a social media presence. I think I had like a LinkedIn and I never, I didn't even have a picture on it. And I had like a Twitter that was private that I had from college. And it was just like me liking sports stuff. You know, I never tweeted and, uh, and I just 2020 hit and it was like, you know, you call everybody once in your phone and ask them how they're doing. This is like April, May of 2020 and check in with everybody. And then, you know, a week goes by, and you can't go to you can't go to any events. All the industry events are canceled. You can't go out to dinner. Can't do all these things. All this networking that you would normally do. And so I just felt like in a funk from a connecting with people and talking to people. And my little brother has a podcast. I'll uh, plug it. It's called Fire Code Tech, and he's a fire protection engineer. And he'd had it for about a year. And he was just telling me all these benefits that he got from. Me. He's like, man, I'm meeting all these people. He's like, it's forcing me to network. He's like, I have to come up with someone new every week to have a conversation with. He's like, you know, you guys have your companies and you've, you know, had some success. So why don't you like use your already existing platform, which is kind of just in stealth mode. Like my partner's 30 years, my senior. So he's in his sixties and he's just like the old school, you know, you meet somebody uh, and it's all this just kind of word of mouth uh, networking. And so my little brother just pushed me to do it. And I basically just leaned in and was like, you know what, I'm going to do this and start a Twitter and start a podcast and honestly didn't really know um, what was going to come of it, but I'm just one of these people that like, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to commit. And so I've just kind of just committed and I'm like 123 episodes in now and didn't launch the first one till, uh, December of 2020. So it's been a little over a year, but, um, but yeah, we talk about all different types of things in the, uh, energy industry. It's not just oil and gas. I try to be fairly broad. I do a lot of Bitcoin content because I'm super interested in it. And I think it's one of the more fascinating stories in energy right now. So plus we have a Bitcoin mining company. So uh, I do a lot of that. And some people joke with me and they're like, is this like a Bitcoin podcast now? But 
Uh, I'm, I'm a believer that Bitcoin's energy-backed money. I think it's changing the energy landscape. It's some of the more interesting conversations that I have. And so, um, and so that's the background on the pod, but, uh, but yeah, it's been a fun, it's been a fun journey. Oh, that's really cool. And I know uh, Joe more than myself, but we both listen to the podcast. I know Joe's a pretty avid listener. Um, I, I want to pivot now to kind of what's going on in like the oil and gas industry today. Obviously, you know, as we touched on at the beginning, this year's had no shortage of, you know, kind of cataclysmic events that I don't even think we know the second and third order effects that we'll probably see, see for, for years to come. But just from a high level, what's kind of been the, you know, the tale of the, the oil and gas industry over the last I call it, you know, six to 12 months, including we've seen, you know, oil and gas prices rising, all these types of things. I'll take it back a little further to start. So, you know, in the mid 2000s, we, there was a lot of talk around in the early 2000s around peak oil that, you know, we weren't going to able to be able to find more. The U.S. had been on a downtrend uh, for oil and gas production. Um, you know, really, it was just considered that we had run out of all the good locations to drill and this was kind of like the science at that time. People were just like, if you, you know, it's not economic to produce, like, for example, shale rock. And so uh, in kind of the early to mid 2000s, we'd already had the technology of fracking or fra horizontal or hydraulic fracturing. People think fracking is like a new thing. It's been around for decades. But what they were able to do was combine uh, hydraulic fracturing with uh, horizontal drilling. And so they were able to open up uh, these different reservoirs of rock called shale, which is typically really tight rock. And that kicked off what they call the shale revolution. The U.S. went from uh, stagnant to declining production to being, you know, the number one energy producer in the world and really was kind of like this massive innovation story and really like a deflationary uh, force that well, a lot of people discount, right? Like we brought on all this new energy and an abundance of energy can be highly deflationary. And so people, uh, you fast forward to kind of when my career started, which was about five or six years after this really took off. And you had groups like Chesapeake, which was the company I worked for that were just exploring for natural gas. And at the end of the 2000s was the last time we saw prices as high as they are today for natural gas. And then this whole tsunami of shale natural gas came online and depressed the prices and they dropped, you know, $5, $4 in MMBTU. Uh, today, I mentioned earlier, they're about $8.50 or $8 today. And then we had a period from like and then, uh, then shale oil was right after. So first it was gas, gas is easier to extract. And then they got more sophisticated on the oil side, discovered new basins within the U S to produce uh, tight oil or shale oil. And so you saw the price of oil in 2014, finally collapse just with all the new production that was coming online. And so then you went from like 2014, which is when we started our company to really up to like last year, where we were just in kind of this anemic price environment, just because again, the deflationary effects of this new technology and bringing all this new production online. And because of that, we had a lot of headwinds, you know, the returns were really bad for the industry. So, you know, in 14, you saw a lot of private investment, but um, I think the uh, oil and gas companies as a percentage of the S&P were over 10%. I can't remember what it was at the highest point, but it got as low as like 3% of the S&P 500 um, over the last kind of seven years. And that was primarily driven by just bad returns. Like guys drilled for, we were the victim of our own success. We brought all this production online and it, uh, and it cratered the price. And so then in 2020 hit, so you already, you already started to see tremors of like a lack of new investment starting at like the end of the last decade, because, you know, a bunch of institutional investors had been burned, um, oil and gas wasn't popular in the in the public equities. 
And then it was kind of the perfect storm with COVID. Uh, you also had the ESG narrative, a lot of capital allocators uh, being pressured by um, whether that be politicians or at the politics side, or just whether it be institutional investors that wanted to move away from oil and gas. And so you saw uh, just a lack of investment. And then when COVID hit, uh, obviously the lack of you know demand uh, just completely crumbled. People stopped flying, people stopped driving to work, and the price of oil actually went negative. I joke around with a lot of Bitcoin people. I'm like, you guys think it's volatile. Uh, it's like our industry, it went negative. I and mean, it was a scary time. Like I remember just exactly, it's like one of those things in your life where you remember where you were at that moment. And I remember I was just sitting there, I was at home because it was COVID and uh, just watching it go to like $5 a barrel, $3 a barrel on the ticker on TV. And then it was like negative $3. And you're like, what am I looking at? And it was like, got all the way down to like negative $37. And it was, it was scary. It was like, what does this even mean? You know, like, uh, it's like the world's most vital commodity and you can't even give it away. And so that really caused just a complete and total collapse of new capital coming into the space. And what people don't realize is that, and I promise I'm getting to today, I'm almost there. What people don't realize is that there's just so much capital needed for oil and gas drilling. Like you look at the number or the amount of production today and just, you know, when an oil well comes on, think of it like the uh, hash rate and hash rate continues to build and it continues to get harder to mine similar to oil and gas, like you bring it on and the day you bring that oil well on, it costs a ton of money to install or to drill the well. And then from day one, it just starts dropping uh, and gets harder and harder to produce from that well until eventually the well depletes. And so just to keep production flat at a worldwide level, you need billions and tens of billions annually invested um, just to keep the production where it is. And so uh, we had an even further pullback of investment. And then, you know, as things started opening back up, uh, you know, people started driving again, people started flying again, and you can't just flip it on uh, with a light switch. And so there was the supply chain stuff that's happened where it's harder to get uh, materials like steel and pipe for the operations that we have. You had a bunch of people leave the industry, especially at the field level, you know, guys that uh, are hourly workers and work out in the field. I mean, a lot of guys just left, the, they just switched industries, you know, and so you had a ton of talent just leave because there was no jobs and there was no activity. And so that, you know, we started to see prices start to spike last year, you know, $50, $60, $70. And it was like, all right, but there were still a lot of people saying, hey, it's never going to get back over to 100, over 100, because we have so much production. And then really just uh, the Ukraine war and everything going on with the Russian sanctions, and then the continual reopening of the economy has just, uh, has just caused oil to get to recent highs that we haven't seen in forever. But even on an, infl but if you look at it on an inflation adjusted basis, so the last time I think oil peaked out at like $147 a barrel, that was 2008. We've printed a lot of dollars, uh, as you guys know, since 2008. And so to get like on a uh, inflation adjusted basis, oil would have to go significantly higher from where it is today. I don't know the exact number. I want to say it's in the upper hundreds, maybe even 200 a barrel. Uh, someone just put a tweet out this morning on it. But uh, we're still a long ways off from the highs on an inflation adjusted basis. And then uh, Nat gas is a similar story. But it is, uh, you know, driven by European natural gas prices going up. You know, we've got now LNG where we can uh, connect the U.S. market to the world market. And so you're seeing us exporting gas and that's lifting up the domestic price. And then that combined with the supply chain shortages on getting new wells on, plus the uh, lack of associated gas. A lot of gas, we lost a lot of gas that comes with oil drilling. So there was a lot of gas that natural gas that dropped off when the oil dropped off. And that hasn't come back yet. So that's uh, kind of the history, the recent history of shale and where we're at. But we're just in a situation where we need more oil and gas. And uh, it's just not easy to bring it on quickly. Yeah, Max. So 
going further in on that, like, do you think the future of energy is a lot of more oil and gas? Like I know a lot of people talk about, you know, going green, wind and solar and, you know, like people, places like Europe have had major issues trying to make that transition. What do you think the energy mix will look like, you know, over the next 10, 20 years? It's a complicated question. I think the easiest thing is to put some numbers around it. So, you know, we hear a lot about electrifying everything, but right now electricity is only about 18 to 20% worldwide of current energy usage. So, um, you know, a lot of what we use oil and gas for is industrial purposes, uh, things like cement and steel, uh, things like ammonia is a huge, uh, which makes fertilizers is how we, you know, feed the planet. Um, you've got uh, power generation, is a big one. Uh, plastics use a lot of energy to make plastics and things like that. So there's a lot of things that won't easily be replaced or may never be replaced. I mean, I did a video the other day said, you know, we'll never completely eliminate it. Um, but you're certainly seeing the trend of wanting to do more renewables. And I think it's interesting. The, the main thing is like, there's two things, there's renewables and the power inside. And then there's uh, the automotive or transportation industry. And this is really where you know, the policymakers and the people that want to switch to kind of a more uh, greener, different uh, style of energy have focused on because there's so much demand uh, for gasoline. And so the thesis is basically we'll switch all the cars to electric, and then we'll switch all the electricity generation to uh, renewables. And then that will make it to where, you know, we take a huge chunk out of worldwide oil demand. And it's just going to be a challenge. I think today, uh, the total EVs on the market are around uh, I want to say like 27 million EVs out of about a billion cars on the road. So it's about two, uh, 2.7% of the total car fleet. Now that wedge is growing. Um, you know, all the major, major automotive, uh, manufacturers have come out and said they've got these big EV plans. And now what you're seeing though, is that, uh, the spike in commodity prices is really making uh, that challenging because these cars are getting more and more expensive. Like you have to use hydrocarbons to mine the batteries or the raw materials to make the batteries for these cars. You have to have healthy supply chains uh, to ramp up new products. And so I think there will continue to be uh, a shift to EV, but it's gotta be, you know, a realistic approach. And then the other thing is it has to meet consumer demand. I mean, like you can't just top down and say, Hey, by the way, we're going to change everything over to, electric vehicles, you know, people actually have to want to buy them. And so it seems like you read a lot of things like there's a healthy demand for EV, uh, but we'll see. I mean, until they can, you know, have them charge uh, quicker until they can have them have a longer range, I think it's going to be hard to have widespread adoption. And the other thing is the price point has to come down. I mean, historically, uh, EVs have been luxury cars, like the majority of EVs sold in America have been Teslas. I can't remember the exact price point, but it's in the luxury car range. So it's really been uh, not to be cynical, it's been a lot of taxpayer dollars to subsidize uh, high-end luxury vehicles for the ultra-rich. Uh, so far, that's been the movement. Now, moving forward, they say that the prices are going to plummet. It's going to be the every man's car. We just haven't seen that yet. And so, and then the other side is renewables. And I think renewables will continue to have penetration on the grid, but they cause problems as well. Maybe Bitcoin mining can smooth some of it out. Uh, I think some of that's a meme. I think some of it's really happening. But Renewables need backup. You know, you need reliable energy. I think that uh, the renewable story is really kind of a bullish natural gas story, in my opinion. Should be bullish nuclear, but I don't know when uh, the regulatory bodies will get on board to, you know, expedite nuclear facilities. But that is really, in my opinion, uh, moving to nuclear, uh, moving to lower carbon uh, energy sources like natural gas. I mean, there's a lot we can do to meet a lot of the stated kind of CO2 reduction goals. 
a lot of that we can do just with existing technology. Like we don't have to invent a new type of battery. Uh, we can just, you know, switch everything to NAC gas and, you know, build new nuclear facilities and lower the emissions to the, to the rate that we need to. And I think last point on this is that the U.S. is leading the world. We've actually uh, peaked in emissions around the beginning of the shale revolution. So uh, you don't hear this a lot, but when we invented this better way to drill, we got all this new natural gas, which flooded the market, which incentivized people to switch from coal to natural gas. So our emissions have been dropping pretty rapidly since 2005. In fact, we're leading the world and we did it through uh, fracking gas wells, not through renewables. I think like 60 something percent of the emission redu emissions reductions have been through natural gas switching. And there's a recent slide from EQT where they said that if we just replaced all the coal plants, it would reduce uh, around the world with LNG it would reduce emissions by more than replacing all the cars in the U.S. with EV and putting rooftop solar on every house and uh, installing, I think, 57,000 uh, wind turbines. So there's things we can do, and I think uh, to lower emissions, and I think that uh, natural gas is going to play a critical role in that because it's already happening. So uh, kind of a narrative violation, but, uh, but I think it's going to trend more towards that. Not that there's not going to be renewables, not that there's not going to be EVs, but I think we can use existing technology and get a long ways towards the goals. Pivoting this to kind of like Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin mining centric uh, topics, like how do you think about the the makeup of energy usage in Bitcoin mining? Obviously, over the last two years, as Bitcoin's kind of been on the main stage, you've seen a lot of mainstream media outlets. Whether you know, don't want to get too tinfoil hat, tin too tinfoil hatty about you know maybe who's behind some of those uh, I guess narratives. But what are your thoughts on you know kind of just the overall? makeup of energy going into Bitcoin mining and where do you kind of see that headed specifically moving forward? Well, I think that it's going to gravitate towards the lowest cost energy, which is like the simplest answer. And I think that you start to look at where the low cost energy is. And what was shocking to me when I started getting, because I'm not like really an electricity guy, I've gotten smarter on it now that I've been more on the mining side. But what was shocking to me is just the amount of waste uh, that we have, like on grid and off grid. Um, so on natural and the off-grid side, you know, you've got a lot of sites, especially worldwide. It's not as bad in the U.S., but you've got a lot of sites where you drill for oil and there's just associated gas and you can't do anything with it. It's uneconomic to lay a pipeline. Even at 850 gas, you can't get a pipeline there. And so Bitcoin mining can come in and buy that gas and reduce that waste. And it's very cheap for them to do so because the oil producer, oil producer just wants to sell the oil. So they'll give you the gas for very cheap on the grid. And, and in like the Middle East and countries like that, I mean, there's just, just massive amounts of uh, flared and wasted gas. I don't know if you guys saw the Caruso announcement today that they're partnering with Amon. Uh, I think that's how you say it, the country, uh, to go do flared gas mining over there. And I think they actually took an equity stake uh, in the company. So it's kind of a wild press release. But, um, but if you really think about the amount of wasted energy, it's just there's tons in the oil and gas world. It's not as bad here, again, because we have more regulations. But worldwide, natural gas is a byproduct and is flared uh, all over the place. So basically free energy. And then on the grid side, what we've seen is that with renewables, this you know new influx of renewables, like you know they they work whenever they work. They don't work when you need them to work. Uh, they don't. They're not. You know sometimes they overproduce, sometimes they underproduce. But a good example is like wind. Sometimes it blows harder at night, uh, and, and that's not when people are using electricity. So you've got this excess uh, excess power. The other thing is on the grid is you've got a lot of inefficiencies around transmission. So you may have like this power generation source, like the ride example, where they stepped into the old Alcoa smelting plant, had all this power that was out in West Texas. It was used for industry. The industry went away and it was uneconomic, kind of like the pipeline example. 
it was uneconomic to lay the transmission lines uh, to connect that power source to the market. And so Bitcoin mining stepped in. So I think that the energy mix is going to be driven more through economics than it will be through kind of the virtuous nature of where the energy is at. Because the reality is, is if you know, you're forced to use a certain type of energy and it's more expensive, then you're not going to last in Bitcoin mining. So uh, there may be some people that you know, gravitate towards a certain project because it has a cool story to it that it's like greener or whatever. It doesn't even have to be greener. It could just be for whatever reason. But if they're not competitive on a cents per kilowatt hour, then they're not going to be able to weather the up and downs. And so I think that the mix will be driven by, by really just the cost of energy, um, less so than like the narrative of like what's clean and what's not. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people will, you know, do more just because of that narrative. But I think ultimately you guys know Bitcoin miners. I mean, what's the most important thing? is like the lowest OPEX that you can get. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I thought it was interesting how for Nat Gas specifically, you mentioned like about summer of, of last year, 2021, you know, you could, Bitcoin mining could basically buy Nat Gas for $35 per unit for MMBTU, whereas the price today and, and or back then may have been, you know, $3 per MMBTU. So I guess other than, you know, price and economics and I guess wasted energy, which I'm guessing are like the main reasons why oil and gas operators are set up so well to be Bitcoin miners. Are there any other like key reasons or is, or is that like the main point? Uh, that's where like a lot of the adoption has been recently. My big thing is that like, I think it's a great hedge. I think it's an amazing uh, kind of barbell investment opportunity. So, if, you know, familiar with that term, but basically you've got kind of your core investment thesis on one side that's stable-ish, right? I mean, oil and gas is volatile, but the operators know that business. They know how to operate it. And then on the other side of the uh, investment, you have Bitcoin mining, which could be used for just a proportion of their gas. So even if the gas has a market, why not carve off 5 or 10% of your production, use it to mine Bitcoin. If you have oil production and you have gas production on the other side, you can sell that into the marketplace, make a good price, make a good return. You can then hold the Bitcoin because you're not having to sell it because you have all these other revenue streams coming in. And to me, that's such an asymmetric bet. It's like, okay, well, number one, it's kind of a hedge, like, right? So if, you know, commodity prices are going up, then you get the benefit of that because you're producing this commodity that typically, uh, you know, will rise and fall. But then like if commodity prices get too high and we have a recession, which tends to happen when they get to these levels, that causes commodity prices to crash. Well, then what happens when we have a recession, the Fed, you know, turns on the, the money printer again and, you know, tries to uh, bring back liquidity and bring back more, stimulus into the economy, which typically uh, causes the price of, I mean, I don't think, you know, look, Bitcoin trades like a tech, uh, you know, a tech stock right now. I don't think that it is, but a lot of institutional investors and, you know, other investors are taking cues from the tech sector. So um, you kind of got this, you know, situation where if like on one hand, commodities go up, you're good. If Bitcoin's depressed, you can invest at a much cheaper price for the ASICs. If commodities come down because of a recession, Bitcoin price pumps because uh, QE starts up again or, you know, uh, they print more money. And so to me, that's an amazing opportunity. And I think the coolest thing, again, gets back to you don't have to sell the Bitcoin. If you have these other revenue streams as an oil and gas operator, I mean, that's just, that's what you want as a miner, right? You want to be able to mine at a very low cost. You want to be able to control your energy source and you want to be able to not sell Bitcoin uh, because if you're just selling every single Bitcoin you get, you know, it's a harder case to make versus just buying Bitcoin and holding it versus mining it. So, uh, I think the oil and gas industry is going to embrace it. I think in the future, it's going to take time, but I think in the next two to four years, you'll see, you're already hearing rumors of funds that have been raised just to focus on oil and gas mining. But I think in the next two to four years, 
you're going to see a lot more capital flowing into the space, specifically targeting that investment strategy for the reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess we'll probably start to wrap this one up. Um, I know you're working on like a mini mining documentary. What, uh, tell us about that. And, and we're, I'm lo we're looking forward to seeing it at Blockware. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I've gotten, like I said, I got into the podcast thing. And then what I also have gotten into is found that I have, uh, I really enjoy doing the video editing. I really like to do video and film things and then spice it together. I kind of did a few sort of vlog type stuff last year. It just takes a lot of time. So it's really hard for me to do it, but it's really fun. Like when I was younger, I played in like a band and did, uh, music stuff. And so I have kind of a background on the creative side a little bit. And so, you know, I just thought, look, let's, uh, let's video some of the stuff with our journey over the last kind of year and a half. And then let's slap it together in kind of a little mini doc is just a project that I thought would be fun. It was actually me biting off a lot more than I thought uh, to do it, but I'm pretty much finished and I hope to release it this week. So it's just, it's just a fun thing that tells our story a little bit, uh, gives some pretty cool shot, you know, aerial drone footage of some of the mines that we've either brokered or that we've set ourselves and a couple of interviews with the team, but uh, yeah, it's something that something that's just a hobby and it's fun to do and excited to put it out there. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that. And we advise listeners to do the same. Max, we want to say thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, this was incredible. We covered a lot of ground in a, in a relatively short period of time before we wrap up. Is there like any, I guess, last words of wisdom or final thoughts you want to give to the audience? Just want to say thanks to Blockware. Um, I don't know if everybody on here knows, but Blockware recently uh, came in and sponsored the pod. It was a, you know, a big deal for the podcast. It's been uh, a fun journey. And, you know, if anybody wants to check that out, they can go to blockwaresolutions.com slash energy. And that helps my channel. And, you know, we're hoping to get some units set for you guys. We've got a number. What I'd like to do is make Blockware like a household name uh, in the oil and gas space. And I think that I believe that that's going to be a, a growing sector of mining. And I think it's going to be a big growth sector for mining. And so the worlds are merging and I kind of view the relationship with Blockware as like a way to hopefully, you know, bring Blockware into that space, make it a name that everybody knows and hopefully get some units sold and uh, in place for you guys. That's the goal. So I'm working on it. Love it, man. Yeah. We're, we're very stoked to continue working with you. So thanks so much, Max, everyone uh, be sure to check out his podcast as well as the uh, Ancoba website and, and Max's uh, Twitter as well. Max, what's your, what's your Twitter just so that the listeners know where to come find you. Yeah, it's Max underscore Gagliardi. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. The podcast is talk.energy is the website or just talk energy podcast on YouTube. Um, and uh, you can check that your favorite podcast app. But yeah, man, thanks, Will. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it, guys. It was fun. Awesome. Take it easy, man. Thanks, man.